Welcome to the Nonprofit Insider. On this podcast, we give a little bit more of a commentary feel to some of the things that are happening in the nonprofit space. And we're not just talking fundraising either. We talk about all the aspects of being in the nonprofit world, the people, the relationship, the news, the politics, and the money that all comes with being in this world. Stick around. Welcome back to another episode of the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Kareem. Hopefully, you're having a good day. Things are going well. If you're listening to this in the middle of the week, uh, you still got a couple days left, but you know, weekend's right around the corner. And if you're listening to this on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, whatever time of the year you're listening to this, hopefully you're just uh, really enjoying yourself. And listen, what we've been doing, this is episode seven. We've been doing a couple of really great things. We've had the rapid fire books. The nonprofit horror stories are really taking off. If you haven't had a chance, listen to the previous episode, episode six. There's a story out of Colorado, funny enough, that uh, you're really going to enjoy. And I've got another news section here coming up in about a minute I'm going to talk about. Real fast, not going to do a horror story today or a rapid fire book. I think I'm going to save that for episode eight. That episode will be coming out on May 10th. We're going to talk about, I think, a leader in the nonprofit industry, but I'm not going to lie. We're getting a lot of nonprofit horror story submissions, so I might stick with that. That might just be one of those things that I have to do on a much more regular basis. So no horror stories today. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what is a nonprofit here in about 10 minutes, so stick around for that. But let me get to the news section. One of the great things I love about doing the news section on every episode, and I think that's one thing for sure I'm going to stick with every episode, because it gives me and you an opportunity to learn something new. There's a lot of stories that are happening across the United States as it relates to work, initiatives, desires, events that are happening in the nonprofit space. And one of the things is you just don't have the ability to consume them all. Depending on the particular lane you're in, you might not hear about events that are happening in Oregon or Michigan. And so one of the things I really enjoy doing on this podcast is it gives me an opportunity to learn something new, and hopefully you do as well. And and a story that I came across, again, just type it in Google, just type the nonprofit, was from the the website, I want to make sure I say it right, the Coloradan that's Colorado. I, I listen. I'm in Colorado all the time. Love Denver. Love Durango, Pueblo, Pagosa Springs. I mean, I love all those areas. And Fort Collins is one of the towns. Love Fort Collins that I've really thought about moving to at one point in time. There's an article that came out of Colorado.com by the author Pat Furrer, and I'm going to go ahead and read the. I'm going to go ahead and read the headline here. It says, and I quote: "Facing economic hardships." Old Town Nonprofit 10,000 Villages Reaches Out for Help. I saw that headline and I knew I immediately had to click on that because a couple of reasons. One, I have a connection with 10,000 Villages. I'll talk about that here in a second. But when you ever, whenever you hear about nonprofits that are facing hardships, and it's something that happens a lot on the local level, a lot of great journalists and local community advocates are out there learning and discovering nonprofits that the money just might not be right. So there may be some struggles along the way. So when I saw that facing economic hardships, I know I had to click on it because that's usually the sign of a nonprofit that's about to die, if we're being honest. 
But like I said, I have a relationship with 10,000 Villages. So let me, let me back up here a little bit. 10,000 Villages, if you've never heard of it, is a nonprofit organization. They're actually based out of Akron, Pennsylvania. And one of the things that's really unique about this nonprofit 10,000 Villages is they have a very similar structure. I like to say they have a similar structure of the United Way on one hand. They have a structure like the United Way, but they have a function that's very similar to that of Goodwill. And here's what I mean. 10,000 Villages, their main headquarters, as I mentioned, their, their main headquarters is in Akron, Pennsylvania. But one of the things is they have different nonprofit entities across the United States. So they'll have, a, for example, a 10,000 Villages, Indiana, uh, or Indianapolis, a 10,000 Villages, uh, Miami, 10,000 Villages in Charlotte. Just I'm just rattling names. And one of the ones they have is a 10,000 Villages in Fort Collins, Colorado. And this is where this article is based out of. And with 10,000 Villages, they get really nice handmade fair trade materials from across the world. They purchase these things from places like Egypt, um, Panama, Peru, parts of Brazil sometimes, Nigeria, and they get these really, really nice products. They bring them into the United States and then they sell that, again, fair trade so that everyone is really getting a, an amazing aspect of the deal. And it's, it's a really great structure in that respect. I really, it's one of the reasons I've always actually liked 10,000 Villages because they, they have a function that's like Goodwill and that they get products they sell the products for the betterment of society, and they're able to really go out into the marketplace, the capitalistic marketplace, and see what they can do. And it's really great because they have the ability, of course, to not pay federal tax, which is always good. And so they're able to get these really nice products. It's fair trade. It's good for the society as a whole, but they can still have that nonprofit designation, which I really, really love. But they work kind of like the United Way in that they have their main headquarters, but they'll have all these different other nonprofits that are independently registered, uh, very similar to like you have United Way of Greater Boston, United Way of the Greater Chesapeake Bay Area, the United Way of San Francisco, right? They're all separate United Ways, but they just use that tagline, 10,000 Villages works in the same. So in the article, the, the author, Pat Furrer, talks about how this organization, this 10,000 Villages in Fort Collins, due to COVID and a couple other things, they just don't have the money coming in. And that they're about, if I'm not mistaken, I'm looking here, $50,000 behind. And I really enjoyed the, the writing in this particular article because Again, it's very localized. It's good if you're in Fort Collins to absorb what's happening. You've probably heard of the organization from one time or another. But it's really an amazing job by the author of just saying, listen, or explaining this is an organization, this is what they're going through, and in the interviews that they have, you're able to get a sense that this nonprofit has, it's clear, they have a retail store, they have amazing products, but they just don't have enough money to support the store continuing. Sounds familiar, right? Like a donation store or a nonprofit bookstore or a nonprofit uh, clothing store. You see that sometimes, right? They're able to have a store. You use the money to provide and supplement or help with that particular nonprofit, whether it's 
uh, a common one you hear is women that maybe are entering the workforce or people that are down economically, they can come in, buy clothes at a really reduced rate. Those can be nonprofits similar to this nonprofit structure of 10,000 Village. And for me, it's actually a little bit of a, of a personal connection because back in 2009, I used to volunteer at the 10,000 Villages in Asheville, North Carolina. I was, what was I, 21, 22, you know, getting ready to graduate college, in college in Western North Carolina. And one of the things that they had was a 10,000 Villages in downtown Asheville, next to this wonderful place called Tupelo Honey. I hope they're still there. Oh, the food there was really good. Shout out to Asheville. And I used to volunteer there, not, not super often, but about four or five times I volunteered at that 10,000 Villages. Fast forward about four or five years, I'm moving back to Philadelphia. It's me, it's my ex-wife, she was my girlfriend at the time. We, no, actually I think we were engaged at the time, yeah. We, that's how I remember, I'm like, what was I doing at that time? Who was I dating? What was in my mind? So I, we, we, we had, uh, did some international travel, we ran out of money, and we had to move back in with our parents. So we ended up moving in with my mom in Philadelphia. And so it's 2014 and I'm trying to get a job because we had no more money. Economy was garbage even then, starting to pay student loans. And I ended up finding on Craigslist that they were opening a 10,000 villages in Arden, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Philadelphia. And I said, you know what? I used to volunteer there. So I applied for the job and I ended up being a paid employee with 10,000 villages for six months from uh, in 2014. So it's just an interesting example of how one, volunteering really can get you a job because that was clearly the main reason I got the job. But it also gives you a show of how so much can be interconnected as it relates to the opportunities nonprofits provide to society. Nonprofits do amazing work, an amazing job in many of our communities. And that was just an example for me as a young 20 something really trying to make his footing in the job market. So going back to this article, I'm gonna put it in the show notes. I like that the offer highlights that this is a fair trade ordeal, so they're getting some amazing products. So again, from all over the world, but it's a fair trade ordeal. And author does a great job of really detailing the store's struggles, really putting you into the mindset and a much more localized level of what's happening with this particular nonprofit. So. Props to local uh, props to so props to local journalists all over the United States that are doing some amazing work. Check out this article because I think a lot of nonprofits are under the impression that you can only get money in one particular way. And I love that Ten Thousand Villages does an amazing job of saying, "Hey, this is one way that we're able to have a nonprofit status, do work in the world, and still be able to raise money." A few weeks ago, I received a text message from my hairstylist asking me if I could take a look at an organization she was looking at doing a little bit of investing with. So I told her, yeah, sure, no problem. Send it over, would love to help. I've been working with my hairstylist for eight years now, so she's always giving me some insights on things that are happening in my local community. She's very well connected, love her, trust her. I said, yeah, absolutely, would, would love to help. And one of the things with anything, with any industry, is the more you're in that particular industry, the more you're going to get people asking you questions and insights because they trust you. 
they know you have a particular set of knowledge or skill sets that maybe they don't have that you can help with. If I have a house and I have a, a leak happening in my bathroom and I have a friend that's a plumber, I'm going to call them. If my car is making noise and I have a cousin who's a mechanic, I'm going to ask my cousin for insights. So when she had asked me, this this was like a, a no-brainer. I said, absolutely. Knowing that I don't, I'm not an investor, nothing like that. But she was under the impression that this organization was a non-profit organization. So I, I scope it out. I think it was like, uh, uh, I don't even know the name of it right offhand, but it was like a farming collective based out of Nigeria. And within this collective, you give them a, a particular amount of money, say 500 bucks, $1,000, you know, you can give them more. But let's say $1,000, you give them $1,000, they hold the money for three months, six months, whatever the case may be. They help a local farmer or collective group in this particular country of Nigeria, great country. And over time, you get like your money back, right? You get maybe... 3% back, 6% back, 10% back, whatever the case may be, depending on how long you let them hold on to your money. And it had me thinking, as I'm looking at this organization, it's clear very quickly that this is a this is definitely not a nonprofit organization. This is for sure a for-profit organization. And, and it had me thinking in that moment how... If you're listening to this right now, you're listening to the Nonprofit Insider, chances are you are a nonprofit. You're in the nonprofit space to one degree or another. Maybe you're a staffer, an executive, a contractor, donor board member, whatever the case may be. You might have an understanding at a basic level of what a nonprofit is. But I think there's a lot of people not only in the industry, but especially outside of the industry that may not really understand what a nonprofit is. And not just in terms of what it is and how we believe it, but technically how the government defines it, how we as a society in the rules and the laws that we've written, what constitutes a nonprofit. So I told her, you know, I told her, I said, listen, be careful whenever you part ways with your money. You're always going to want to be a little bit cautious of those things. Consult a lawyer, maybe a financial planner to kind of ask around, especially when you're talking international. It could be a little bit tricky. And so she took my advice and I think she's doing her own due diligence. But that conversation with my hairstylist gave way to a really poignant question that I think a lot of people, even in the for-profit industry, don't ask themselves. What is a nonprofit anyway? But before we get into that, can I tell you about my friends over at the Nonprofit Insider Podcast? That's right, you know I had to do my own promo. And what I want you to do right now is open your Instagram app, because I know you are on Instagram, and follow me at the Nonprofit Insider. We have a slew of high-level posts that are going to improve your life in the nonprofit space in a relaxed and informative fashion. We're talking facts, stats, opinion pieces, exclusive nonprofit horror stories I'm only going to share on Instagram, and some pretty cool pictures from time to time. Plus, every Friday I do a weekend survey question so you can stay connected with me in the greater Nonprofit Insider podcast community. And best of all, 
we only post once a day. So you don't have to worry about seeing 800 million stories and posts on your feeds for me. It's so annoying when I see those things. Again, follow me at the Nonprofit Insider on Instagram right now. All right, let's get back to the show. So for the next 10, 15 minutes, I wanted to kind of do a little bit of a quick rundown on what actually constitutes a nonprofit. And if you get a chance over these next couple of minutes, bust out the laptop. If you're listening on your phone, you can you know listen to, listen to your phone and, and do some things because there'll be two moments I'm going to have you go ahead and mess around and do a little bit of an internet search. So the first one right off the jump is right now type in what is a nonprofit. If you use Google, you know Bing, whatever the case, what, what Internet Explorer, whatever your internet uh, browser search may be, Yahoo. Type in what is a nonprofit, and you'll see you're gonna you're gonna get different answers to what constitutes a nonprofit. But at its core, you're going to see the same series of words used over and over again. I'll talk about that here in about three minutes. But let me step, let me take a step back here. In the United States, we have this thing called the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service. Many of us have heard of it. It's tax season this time of the year. A lot of us are trying to file our taxes, you know, before the deadline comes due. And the IRS is the group that determines what constitutes a nonprofit status because it's within a, a nonprofit that you do not have to pay federal taxes. A lot of us know that. What a lot of us may not know is that the IRS actually identifies 29 different 501c structures that are eligible for nonprofit uh, tax exemption. And one of the things I want to be sure to clarify, one, not again, not a lawyer, not a tax expert by trade, just someone who works and operates in a nonprofit space and knows a lot of insights. And so the IRS has a 501D structure, they have a 501E structure, a 501F structure, but a lot of us in the nonprofit space know about the 501C structure. And so the most common one that most of us have heard of is a 501C3. We'll talk about that here a little bit more in depth in about four minutes. A lot of us know a 501C structure. When you're talking St. Jude's, when you're talking youth villages, when you're talking Habitat for Humanity, those are 501c structures, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. But there's other 501c structures as well. There's a 501c structure. Those are any type of corporations organized under the Acts of Congress. Those are usually going to be your credit unions. So when you're talking Nucinda Credit Union, when you're talking Kirkland, Federal Credit Unions, those are 501C structures. So that's how they're nonprofits. You have a 501C2, you have a 501C3, a 501C4, and it goes all the way up to a 501C29. I'll post a really good link in the show notes that gives some examples of what the different 501C structures are. And we'll talk a little bit more here in about five minutes of some others. But one of the, the, the common themes that you see from the IRS is in order to be tax exempt, you have to do a certain number of things to or activities to get that tax exemption. And the common theme you see from 
lawyers, executives, business folks, when it comes to being in a nonprofit space, there's a series of language in this thing called the IRS's 557 publication. So this is the second thing I want you to do right now. You can hit the pause button here in a second. I want you to type in IRS 557 publication. It'll probably be the first thing that pops up. It's a tax form from the IRS that lists all different 29501C structures and all the different activities or actions you need to take in order to serve as a, to, to, to generate a 501C organization. And the common thread you'll see over and over again in, in this particular publication, you first see it on page 23 of this 76 page publication. And I'm going to put this in the show notes as well so you can kind of drop to it and see it there. But on page 23, it says, the IRS says, and I quote, no part of the organization's net earnings will incur to the benefit of private shareholders or individuals. Nowhere in this particular publication, and I've been reading the, the 557 now, this is probably my seventh or eighth year reading it. I've been reading this consistently about once a year because I'm always interested to see what type of changes are happening. And going back to my hairstylist, she asked me this because she knows I'm in this space and I take it very seriously. And the, nowhere in this publication does the, the IRS flat out say your charity to get tax exemption has to do this, that, and a third. There's always room for wiggle, which is why, you know, there's a lot of accountants that get paid a lot of money when it comes to this type of stuff to find loopholes in the things. But the, the common thread over and over again is that your organization cannot benefit private shareholders or individuals. Now, that doesn't mean that your nonprofit can't earn money. That doesn't mean your nonprofit can't invest or store money. Nonprofits do that seven days a week and twice on Mondays. Nonprofits invest a lot of money. They spend a lot of money. They earn a lot of money. And they're able to store that money. I think there's this idea that every year you almost have to empty out the coffin, if you will. If you're in the nonprofit space, you have to start every fiscal year with no money. That's absolutely not true. But it does mean that your nonprofit can't benefit an individual. It can't benefit shareholders or AKA an investor. So I can't go to, let me think of a good one. I can't go to my local food bank and say, for every million dollars we raise, I get 5% of that in my, in, in my, um, as a return of an investment, or I get 5% of the money because I've given a certain amount to this particular food bank. That That's just, that's not how it works. But your nonprofit is able to bring in that money and hold it year after year uh, within you know, particular guidelines, you know, not to get in the details or the weeds, but you've seen some nonprofits get a, a little bit of trouble or face a little bit of scrutiny when it comes to this. I've mentioned before, St. Jude's is a prime example. They have a lot of money and they have a reserve that has the ability, if they stop fundraising right now, they have a reserve that's able to last them for the next half decade. Most nonprofits you see tend to have a two, 
maybe three-year window. Not to talk too much about that future episode. But many nonprofits, if they stop fundraising today, they're usually good for like another two, maybe three years, where St. Jude's is going to be good for another five years. So they get a little bit of flack for that because they raise so much money. But neither here nor there. When you're a nonprofit, when you're creating or developing one, you just have to make sure your nonprofit isn't benefiting a shareholder or individual. Now, with that said, the most commonly known 501c structure under the IRS is the 501c3. And again, there's a whole litany of 501c structures. One of my favorites is the 501c13. That is a, a cemetery company where you're able to do contributions. Those are allowed. Uh, and so a lot of us may know, you know if you have a parent or a family member who passes away, you probably go to a, a cemetery. You probably bury that particular person in a cemetery. A lot of those are for-profit cemeteries, but you have the ability under the 501c13 structure to have a cemetery that is a non-profit cemetery. And so you can provide contributions to it. And, and this, is, this is an area where a lot of people, we've seen this before, will have non-profits or start non-profits because they have the ability to add contributions to it to skirt around tax exemptions. Again, like a loophole. And it could be kind of iffy. Go back to episode four, where I talk about the Russell Wilson Foundation, because they were getting in trouble because they, they, they were giving away about $300,000, $400,000 in, in grants. But the amount of money uh, that they were paying their employees, only having three employees, it, it, was, it was kind of sketchy. Go back to episode four to listen to that. So that's one of my favorites is the cemetery company. If you have a 501c4, those are usually going to be civic leagues or social well uh, welfare groups. So you're talking groups like the Rotary Club, the Kiwanis, you're talking about like uh, Civitans and Junior Civitans clubs. Those are social leagues. So those serve under as a 501c4 you have a 501c10. Those includes fraternities and sororities. So I used to live in North Carolina, Alpha Kappa Alphas. They're the, the blue, or excuse me, the blue. They're the pink and green. Don't come after me, Alpha Kappas. They, they'll, they'll come after me. But <laughs> they're the uh, the pink and green. And so you'll, you'll see a lot of the Alpha Kappa Alphas doing some amazing work, not just in North Carolina, but all over the U.S. So they're a part of a sorority and sororities and fraternities have the ability to skirt taxes because they serve as a 501c10. So, so check that out again. Check out the show notes. You can see some more about the different nonprofit structures. But I want to, for the next you know, five, six minutes, talk about the number one 501c organization that we're familiar with, which is the 501c3. And when you look at this IRS publication, again, type in the IRS 557 publication. If you look at this this uh, yearly publication, one third of this report, so 22 pages of this 76 page publication is just about 501c structure. And, and, and I'm going to quote this here because it's listed in this publication, but the IRS says, and I quote, an organization may qualify for exemption 
from federal income tax under the 501c3 section if it is organized and operated exclusively for one or more of the following that will allow you to skirt and avoid paying federal income taxes. So you have to be one of the following, or you could be a mix, of course, of one or more. But number one, you can be religious. Number two, or you could be charitable. Number three, you could be scientific. Number four, it could be testing for public safety. Number five, it could be literacy-based. Number six, it could be educational. Number seven, it could prevent or serve under the prevention of cruelty to children or animals. Or number eight, it can be fostering national or international amateur sports competition. So this is going to be a, a good catch-all for a lot of people that are thinking they want to do some type of good in their community and they want to do a, do it in a nonprofit structure. It's probably going to fit under the 501c3 structure. And one of the biggest ones, the second one, charitable, is probably one of the biggest buckets or catch-alls for this particular world. So if you're thinking you're going to do something with senior citizens, maybe you're helping senior citizens do a home repair. You're going to senior citizens' homes and you're helping with leaks or plumbings or bad roofing. You're doing wheelchair ramps. You can justify it in the IRS's eyes as being charitable. I was watching Netflix a few months ago and they had a documentary on the platform called Orgasm Inc., and followed the story about a woman by the name of Nicole De Don. She wrote this book called Slow Sex, The Art of The Art and Craft of the Female Orgasm. It's a it's a interesting documentary, and the book's pretty good too. It's an interesting documentary about the way she organizes this organization and grows like female development and woman development in the modern world. And one of the things in the documentary she talks about, they talk about how they're doing all of these particular things to, to basically move, it's clear, to move in the direction that they are a religious group. And one of the things you see a lot in history is groups come together and say, oh, no, 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 we're not just any organization. We're a religious organization. Well, why is that? Because when you say you're a religious organization, you can go to the IRS and say, hey, we actually shouldn't be paying any taxes. And so one of the things I tell a lot of folks a lot of times, I'm probably going to say it to the day I'm dead, there's a lot of money to be made to be made in the nonprofit space. Because when you're not paying federal taxes, when you're bringing in contributions, you have the ability to use that money in all types of legit ways, but in all types of nefarious ways as, as well. So I think that's a really good stopping point right now. We'll have the ability in some future episodes to distinguish some of the different aspects of organizations just under the 501c status because we didn't even get a chance to talk about what are some of the differences between private foundations and public charities. That's a big part of the nonprofit space, how you get your money, how you distribute your money, and how you have the ability to determine what box you fit under under the IRS's structure. So we'll talk about that in a future episode. But be sure to check out the show notes. Take a look at some of the different 501c structures. I think you'd be surprised 
about some of the different ones that exist out there because they're, it's quite fascinating. And, and let me know. Hit me up on Instagram. Let me know what some of your favorite 501c structures may be.